please be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone today. Boy, what a what a day uh, this is going to be from all. For all, everything I can see as far as the weather goes, a beautiful, crisp morning to ride the motorcycle to church, and uh, uh, the temperature today, Steve, you rode yours, right? That's like the whole family. All right, the whole family, okay. Yeah, well, that's a little more than what I did, so, uh, um, but uh, what they're saying, the temperature's going to be, and add to that a Chiefs victory, and it's just like... Man, how, how, and you got an extra hour of sleep to enjoy all this, right? So, uh, yeah, what a great day to be able to come together and to start the week uh, with a time of worship like this. You know, I want to I begin everything this morning with giving you a glimpse into the future. All right? I'm going to give you a glimpse. And uh, I have great, a great deal of confidence, too. In regards to this, so that means I'm not going to use a crystal ball because I would not have much of any confidence in that regards. I'm going to use something that is a whole lot more reliable in regards to the future. I want to show you a passage of scripture that is found in one of the New Testament letters. Paul was writing this uh, to a a young pastor uh, who was in Ephesus working with a fairly new church in Ephesus And Paul had some words of instruction and some words of caution that he wanted Timothy to hear. And so I'm going to read the first few verses of chapter 3 of his second letter. Paul says this, But know this, difficult times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, Disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers without control, brutal without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And the dot, dot, dot means it continues. He's got a few more things that he's going to say about that. Now, there's a whole lot just in the verses that I read, uh, more than what we can cover uh, today or even in this short three-part series of messages that we're beginning today. But there is one thing in all of that that I do want to talk about. I think it's good for us. We'll be touching on it uh, for three Sundays in a row. And it's smack dab in the middle of that passage. Let me uh, draw attention to it. It's that right there, ungrateful. What Paul is saying is that as time goes on and as we get closer to the end times, that this is going to become more evident all the time, that people are ungrateful. Ingratitude is going to spread, and more and more people are going to develop that kind of an attitude as the time goes on. But the thing is that when you read other portions of Scripture, you clearly begin to see that there's a clear distinction that is to exist 
between this kind of attitude, which is going to prevail by and large, and what should be existing in the community of faith among believers, followers of Christ. Yeah, there, there's a, a, something very different that we are to be grateful, that we are to be thankful. We talk about this not just because, okay, now it's November and Thanksgiving is later this month on November 25th, um, even though that is true. That's not the primary driving reason that we're talking about this subject. We're talking about this subject is, is because there is a serious decline of this going on in the world. And if we're not careful, we can get sucked into that, having some of the same focus and some of the same attitudes. And that's not to be the case. Let me show you what I consider to be a good springboard passage for today's message, but really, for that matter, for the whole series. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And it, it's a good summation of, okay, now that you're a Christian, this is how you should live your life. It says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. It almost makes it sound like that uh, or look like that, that last phrase of three words were just kind of tacked on to the passage because it would add balance or whatever to the passage. But actually, uh, that's not a tack on. Because as you read, and you're going to see over the next couple of weeks, um, as we dive deeper into this subject, you're going to see passage after passage after passage that creates that into being a theme in the Bible. That we are to be people uh, that experience and express gratitude. And I think that that phrase is actually a good one because uh, it creates a visual image in our mind overflowing with gratitude. Even if we wanted to try to contain it, we wouldn't be able to contain it. And what a contrast this is to the passage I opened the message with where Paul was telling Timothy that in the end times, as we get closer to the end, there's going to be less and less of this thing called gratitude among other things. and uh, But Paul uh, here is saying, oh, but as believers, there is to be an abundance of this. In fact, so much so that we cannot contain it. So it bucks the trend of what is happening and will continue to happen in society as a whole. You know, sometimes we get so caught up trying to determine God's specific will for us in a particular area that we end up totally overlooking what God has spelled out clearly right in front of our eyes in regards to what his will is. Here's a passage that Kurt is probably going to touch on more next week, but I'll just say a couple of brief things about it today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, No matter what happens, always be thankful. For this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. So though sometimes people are really trying to figure out what is God's will in this area of my life or what is God's will in this area and they're, they're really hoping God's going to reveal something to them. Well, the reality of the matter is God has revealed some very clear things 
that involves his will for you and for me. And the fact that we be thankful, always thankful, no matter what happens, is a part of that revealed will of God. That particular terminology that's used there in the Greek is a present active imperative. And basically what that means is that this is to be a continuous thing that God wants to see in our life. This isn't to be an isolated thing at a certain particular point in time only, you know, like Thanksgiving, November, the tail end of November. Okay, so you should have you know, thankfulness then, and uh, and then you're kind of released for 11 months. And then when it comes back around again, you're supposed to be thankful again. Well, that's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying that this is something that should be evident in your life today, but it should also be tomorrow. And it should also be midweek. It also should be next weekend. It should be next month. It should be all throughout the year. But Paul was warning Timothy. He was warning him that there's going to be less and less of it that you're going to see around you. There was an encounter that Jesus had that illustrates this. It's only found in one gospel. It's the gospel of Luke. And I'm going to go ahead and read it because it's only nine verses long. It's too long to put on the screen, but uh, it's, it's short enough that it'd be easy for me to be able to read it. This is an encounter that Jesus had that has a whole lot to do with the subject that we're dealing with today. Here's the way it reads. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Like I said, it's only found in the Gospel of Luke. And on the one hand, first impression, you would read that and you would think, boy, that's, that's an upbeat story. That's a good news story. And obviously, because the healing of some leprosy, uh, that would make it a positive thing. But yet, in reality, when I look at that passage, especially in view of what it is that we're going to be talking about today, I see that as being a sad story because there is something sad that is being revealed about human nature that's found in this passage. So let's set the scene a little bit on this encounter. Leprosy was pretty serious stuff. It has always been pretty serious stuff. Whether you talk about today or you talk about in ancient times a couple thousand years ago, it is something that has had to be dealt dealt with for a long, long time. Even back in the days of Moses, leprosy was a thing. In fact, you find two entire chapters devoted in Leviticus in talking about this. I'm just going to read for you these two verses because they're jam-packed with uh, information 
in regards to how leprosy should be approached. Here's what it says in Leviticus chapter 13. Anyone who is discovered to have leprosy must tear his clothes and let his hair grow in wild disarray and cover his upper lip and call out as he goes, I am a leper, I am a leper. As long as the disease lasts, he is defiled and must live outside the camp. Okay, there's more. There's more to be found in that chapter and in the chapter next to it. But I think for right now, that gives us plenty to work with. Lepers were to keep their distance. They were not to be living around healthy people. You even see that reflected in Luke 17 that I read a little bit ago because as they were shouting out to Jesus, what did the text specifically say? It says that they were at a distance. And they were at a distance for a very good reason because that is the understanding and that was the practice. Is that people with leprosy, you know, they they couldn't live and they couldn't interact with healthy people. You couldn't continue to carry on your business and interact with people. You couldn't continue to to uh, be with your children if you were, you know, a, a fairly new mother. You couldn't even nurse your baby, you know, if you had leprosy. You couldn't hold or hug your children or tell them a good night story. You couldn't do stuff like that because there had to be distance. You had to live outside the camp, according to the terminology that's used here. And so now you could spend time around other lepers, and that's where, you know, historically leper colonies and stuff like that, you know, developed. But, uh, but you could not be around healthy people. On top of that, this passage says that you were to tear your clothes and let your hair grow in wild disarray is the terminology used in the living Bible. Now, the text in Luke 17 doesn't say anything in that regards regarding these 10 lepers, but there's no reason why we should think that anything but that would be happening. These would have been people that had their clothes torn as a sign, as an indicator. Their hair would have been unkept because um, in case someone was venturing into their proximity, you know, and the leper didn't notice them coming and warn them because that's basically what a leper was supposed to do. But if the leper wasn't warning them, just by their mere appearance, a person would see and know to steer clear and to keep their distance. And so we would have had 10 guys here in Luke 17. Their clothes would have been ripped. Their hair would have been kind of wild looking. They would have been covering their lip. And the way it reads here is that they were shouting, I am a leper, I am a leper. But I would venture to guess that 99% of the translations that are represented in this room right here, the terminology that is used there is that they were saying unclean because that's actually what the Hebrew word there is directly saying. But again, it was a warning that they, they were warning people that were anywhere within proximity of them, unclean, unclean. And then people would have known to steer clear of them. It wasn't just a physical impact that lepers uh, were experiencing. 
uh, though there was plenty of that because as their, their nervous system, the nerves and everything were, were dying and, and uh, people would get cut and infections and they wouldn't even know at times that they were cut or wounded in one way or another. And, and eventually, little by little, they would lose fingers and toes and feet and ears and their nose. And, you know, th there was definitely a physical impact um, involved with leprosy, which was bad enough in and of itself. But it wasn't the only negative thing that was happening. You also had an emotional impact and a psychological impact that was going on. And, and a lot of that was due to the isolation of your life now. Like I said earlier, you couldn't interact with your family. If you did interact with your family, it was only at a distance. And the scribes, the teachers of the law, they had a, um, a specific distance uh, that would be the closest that a leper you know, could ever come in proximity to someone healthy. And so there would have been that possibility of being able to interact with your family as long as you kept that distance. You know, and so like a family maybe could bring some food and set it on a rock, and then they had to clear out and get back at that distance, and then you could approach that rock and you could get some food. I mean, that was kind of the extent of the kind of interaction. You couldn't hug your children. You couldn't kiss your wife or your husband. You know, stuff like that just wasn't going to happen anymore. So there, there was certainly an emotional impact from all of that. You were shunned by people. People didn't want anything to do with you. And so actually one of the things that would happen, and it just ended up kind of making lepers, you know, kind of be, uh, appear to be like outcasts, is that um, history tells us that back in that time, a couple thousand years ago, what people would do is that if they saw a leper, they would throw stones oftentimes at them, throw rocks at them. And it was just kind of a, a measure of assurance of keep them keeping their distance, making sure they don't get any closer. Even if they were sounding that warning, unclean, unclean, you'd throw rocks that direction, just keep your distance from me. So you can just imagine some of the emotional toll that all of that would have taken. If this indeed was leprosy, which we have no reason to question that, uh, that um, it wasn't, then for all intents and purposes, these 10 guys, uh, they had a death sentence. I mean, they were, in a very real sense, long before the TV series ever came about 10 years ago, they were the walking dead. I mean, because that, that, in a very real sense, is the way people would look at someone with leprosy. It's just that. It's just a matter of time you know, before they're going to die. But they got reminders of death all over their body as time wears on. So here's how it played out. Jesus gives them instructions to go to the priest, which is part of what the Old Testament taught, that if you had a skin disease and everything, then, but it seemed to be going away, well, you couldn't make that conclusion yourself. You had to, and this was one of the very few times you could go in closer proximity to someone, you had to present yourself to a priest, and only a priest could grant that you were cured of whatever that skin disease was, even if it was thought to be leprosy that you had. And so they, they go to the priests as Jesus instructed them. On their way there, they're feeling better. They're looking different. Their, their skin is being restored. Maybe even, 
Maybe even there was healing of other types. Maybe their fingers were back and some of that kind of stuff, you know, was going on. The text doesn't tell us those kind of specifics. But it was only one of them that went back to give thanks to Jesus. Only one of them. We read that in verses 15 and 16 where it says, But one of them, seeing that he was healed, returned, and with a loud voice gave glory to God. He fell face down at his feet, thanking him. And he was a Samaritan. You know, which is kind of key in the text because there would have been, you know, some real racial tension here among Jewish people and Samaritans. But it was a Samaritan who was the one who was expressing gratitude. Jesus' reaction to him was this. He said, we're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Didn't anyone return to give glory to God except this foreigner? Yeah, I don't know that anyone answered that question. You know, where are the other nine? I think it was kind of a rhetorical question, but, but it does help us to see something. It helps us to see that Jesus noticed. And that's one of the things that I want to make sure that we get out of this passage as we're considering what the message is here is that Jesus noticed that just one out of ten said thanks. That is specifically something that his attention was drawn toward. And that's where I came up with the title of today's message. It just says only 10%. It was only 10% of the people in this story that experienced gratitude and expressed that gratitude if you ever thought that expressing gratitude was of little importance to the Lord, that it's kind of an insignificant thing, not that big of a deal, then looking at a passage like this should erase that kind of thinking from your mind. Because actually you see from the very fact that Jesus drew attention to this, that it's something that he notices. It's something that matters to him. Nine out of ten of them apparently made no effort to return to Jesus and to say thanks for what it is that had just happened. Whether you see it or not, there's human nature in this passage that is staring us in the face, and so it is something we need to see. Those nine, in a manner of speaking, were very religious as long as their life was a mess, as long as they were up against leprosy, as long as they were battling that. They seemed to be religious. Verse 13 of the text, they got as close as they could get, apparently, but they were still at a distance from Jesus. But they cried out with these words, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And so there, there seems to be, you know, a pleading, a, call it a prayer, um, a recognition of, of Jesus as someone significant. They're referring to him as Master, you know, but they've got this felt need going on in their life. And uh, that plays into to the expression that they're using. But after they're healed, there no longer seems to be a need that is compelling them any longer, at least the majority of them. And so nine of them don't even make an attempt of going back. You know, you've seen, I think if you... If you search your memory a little bit, you've seen this before. In fact, the reality is some of us have seen this in our own life, this tendency play out. 
that, that people tend to, when they're in the middle of a jam, when they're in the middle of a difficult struggle in their life, that's when they reach out to the Lord. That's when they call upon the Lord. When they're in the middle of a painful divorce and they feel like they're going to lose their family, that's when they're crying out to the Lord. Or if they're coming from a doctor's office and they just received a diagnosis that they've got cancer or that it's one of the advanced stages of cancer, that's when they're very quick to be calling upon the Lord and praying. When they find out that they've got heart problems and they need to go through a pretty extreme procedure to address that, that's when they're calling upon the Lord. When they're facing financial struggles, perhaps even bankruptcy, or they've received notice that their home is going to be foreclosed on, that's when they start calling upon the Lord for help. And they're saying things like, I need you, Lord. My life is a mess. I need your help. But, again, human nature, the way it plays out, too often, when the dust settles and the crisis passes and life pretty much gets back to normal, then they don't think about reaching out much to the Lord anymore because they got other things to do and people to see and places to go. And their attention is drawn elsewhere. Yeah, maybe a lot of that is what's going on here in Luke chapter 17. Is that these guys, they had this obvious need, a felt need in their life. So they're very quick. As soon as they hear the news that Jesus is in the area, they're very quick to hunt him down and start shouting to him. But then once the issues and the problems, the needs are gone, they're not troubling themselves to go out of their way to approach Jesus. To be honest, we don't have the answer to Jesus' question that he asks in verse 17. Jesus says, where are the nine? We don't have the answer to that. Nobody presented an answer to Jesus. None none of the apostles, neither the one uh, uh, healed leper that had returned to Jesus Nobody um, took a stab at it. Now, there's a variety of possibilities in regards to what the answer might have been. Sure, one possibility is that all of these other nine were just blowing off Jesus and they had no intention of bothering themselves with the hassle of going out of their way to return him, uh, to him, to thank him. That is a possibility. Maybe they were just like, I don't need him now. You know, maybe there was that attitude. But then again, on the other hand, perhaps there are some other possibilities here, in all fairness, regarding these other nine. Perhaps uh, one of them, you know, um, when he uh, was diagnosed with having leprosy and had to leave his family and his farm and all of that, he ended up leaving his farm in the hands of his brother-in-law. And his brother-in-law had never been very reliable and days gone by. And so perhaps this one, as soon as he found out from the priest that he was free and clear, thumbs up, you have no leprosy, then this, maybe one of them was making a beeline back to the family farm. Because it had been two or three years now that he had been gone and it had been in the hands of his brother-in-law. So what shape is it going to be in? You know, for the sake of his family and everything, what shape is the farm in? Maybe that's part of the story of a couple of the guys. Maybe another one or two or three 
were fairly young uh, people. And they had had leprosy now for two or three or maybe four years. And they had children back at home, children that they had not held, children that they had not, you know, whispered in their ear or given a kiss on their cheek for all of that time. And now when the priest tells them that they're clear of leprosy, they're making a beeline back home so they can give their son or daughter a big hug. And they can tell them a bedtime story for the first time in three or four years. Maybe that's part of what was going on with some of the nine. Maybe there's another one here that uh, um, it, he had been a leper now for a while and it was nine, ten months ago that his aging father had died. And he got news about that, but there really wasn't anything he could do about it. And he kept thinking about how his mom, now the grief that she was going through, and that he wasn't there to help console her. And so now as soon as the priest says, you're doing well, he's making a beeline to his mom's house in order to be able to console her about dad's passing. You see, what I'm saying is that ingratitude is not always a calloused, who cares, shrug of the shoulders. Sometimes that is what gratitude looks like, and that's what gratitude is. <clears throat> but it's not always like that. Sometimes ingratitude might simply be a matter of, of someone thinking that uh, taking the time to go and say thanks just isn't really at the top of the priority list right now. There's a couple other things I need to do first, and then I'll do that. But then those couple other things distract them enough that they kind of forget all about ever expressing gratitude and getting around to that. But for this one leper, the priority was to go back to Jesus and to express to him the gratitude, the thanks that he knew he deserved, that Jesus deserved. So as I see it, the important question today, we don't want this just to be a little exercise of understanding a little story and history, but we want this to be something where we're looking at it and then we're looking in a mirror and we're looking at ourselves. The important question in all of this is where do I fit in this story? Where do you fit in this story? What is your story in regards to this sort of thing? Don't forget the passage that is to be describing our life. According to Paul, and there's numerous other ones you're going to see in the next two weeks, but we are to be overflowing with gratitude. This is a descriptive phrase of what a follower of Christ looks like. They are overflowing with gratitude. You say, yeah, but um, this isn't really a fair comparison because I haven't had leprosy. I haven't been cured from leprosy. Okay, let's chase that thought a little bit. The reality of the matter is this whole passage is a whole lot more relevant than what at first glance you may think. Yeah, you may not have leprosy, but the reality is you've had something far worse than leprosy. It's called sin. 
I, I intentionally used the phrase, the walking dead, to describe lepers a moment ago. Not that there's a particular place in the Bible where it comes close to using that phrase to describe lepers. But I use that phrase because the reality of the matter is, all of us in here, at one particular point in time, were among the walking dead. And there is a passage that pretty much spells that out. I would encourage you to read the opening verses of Ephesians chapter 2 where it says that we were dead in our sin. And, and it uses verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, you know, to break all of that down. And then you get into verses like verse 5 and then verse 8 of Ephesians 2, and that's where it spells out that we are saved by grace. And we love that. We are drawn to, toward verses 5 and 8. But we kind of run past verses 1 through 3 initially. But basically, that's what verses 1 through 3 are saying, is that because of our sin, we were dead. Spiritually, we were dead. We were away from God. We had no hope. But only because of the grace of God are we not among those dead. Dead in sin. You see, the thing is, we, we, need to, we need to kind of back up a little bit and we need to look at all of this because the reality of the matter is we're not born thankful. This is something that pretty much needs a quality that needs to be nurtured in, in our lives. You know, this whole idea of gratitude. You think about it, you think about what we do with our kids. You know, and whether your kids are born and raised and out of the home and maybe even have kids of their own, or whether your kids are still at home, you know, all parents remember this, is that uh, um, when your kids, you know, someone gives them something, you know, what's that little question that you throw out there? What do you say? What do you say? You know, we had trunk or treat here recently, and, uh, um, you know, I know, um, you know, a lot of you probably that were hosting a trunk. You heard this over and over and over again by their parents after, you know, the kids got something for themselves and for mom and dad. I know how it works. Um, <laughs> the parents would say, what do you say? You know, and uh, the kids, while they were walking away with their eye on the next pot of gold, you know, would uh, say, thank you, you know, and walk on. But see, this is something that needs to be nurtured. And so we've all done it. We've all been there doing that with our kids. It's not something that comes natural. One of the long, longest-running TV cartoons, maybe it is the longest-running, is The Simpsons. You know, I don't, I don't watch The Simpsons, very rarely watch a little bit, you know, of one. Don't really have a particular reason. Uh, just, you know, I don't do that. But the little, the little that I have seen is I, I would guess that a characteristic of that cartoon is that oftentimes they end up taking a little bit of human nature and then they exaggerate it and they make it, put it in a funny context. And it seems like that is, you know, a, a big part of it and the brunt of many of the jokes ends up being the dad, Homer. Um, this one particular one I saw a little bit of involved Bart, the son. And uh, they're all sitting around the table, and Bart is being asked to say grace for the family meal. And his prayer isn't very long, so I'll go ahead and quote the entire thing. This is what Bart Simpson says. 
Dear God, we bought all of this stuff with our own money, so thanks for nothing. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, again, kind of in a hyperbole, kind of exaggerating, you know, a tendency that sometimes happens in human nature. Um, but, you know, there's some truth behind that. That people kind of, you know, they look at what they got in their life and then they think of the blood, sweat, and tears they had to go through in order to acquire that. The long hours, the second job that they had or whatever. And so, so uh, the idea of giving credit to God um, is something that's very hard to genuinely do because they feel like the credit belongs to them. It kind of reminds me of a story that's in the Old Testament it's a fellow by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. You might remember this. It's in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar is one of the guys that had a dream, and none of his wise men could interpret the dream for him, and it ends up being Daniel that comes up with the interpretation of the dream. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a scary dream in regards to what it represents and everything. But Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he kind of goes his merry way. And I don't know if he feels like he's untouchable because he's the king of the most powerful um, country in all of the known world. Uh, that probably has part to do with it. But anyway, about 12 months pass, and this is what we run into. In Daniel chapter 4, 12 months later, he, being Nebuchadnezzar, was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. As he looked out across the city, he said, Look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. Does it kind of seem like he's stuck on himself here a little bit? Like, uh, you know, he might pull a muscle because he's really reaching to pat himself on the back. I mean, if it was possible for him to bow down before himself, I'm sure he would have been doing that, you know, in this passage. But it's very evident where he believes all the credit goes to everything that falls underneath his crown, that it's all because of him, that all of that is his. Well, then... Um, the fulfillment of that dream that he had had in an earlier time, it comes to pass. Next thing you know, Nebuchadnezzar, he's out in the field somewhere, and he's gone mad, and his hair is growing out, and his nails, fingernails, and all grow long, and he's eating grass, and he's just acting like a wild animal out there because he's not in his right mind for an extended period of time. And it was all a part of God's way of giving Nebuchadnezzar the one thing he lacked the most, and that is humility. Because the big issue with Nebuchadnezzar was pride. He was full of himself, thus taking credit for everything himself. And boy, every time that gets in the way of expressing gratitude, pride will always get in the way and derail expressions of gratitude. He was doing that with Nebuchadnezzar, and it will do that every time with you and me. True thanksgiving begins with humility. There's an expression that is found all over the place in the Bible. You can, you know, Google, Google the, the whole idea. God resists 
pride, you know, in one fashion or another. And you're going to find multiple verses scattered throughout the New Testament that basically say, and also in the Old Testament, that basically say what James was recording here, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The reality of the matter is everything we have, we have because of God. Everything, let me say that again, everything we have, we have because of God. James points that out as well at the beginning of his letter in chapter 1. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good thing you have in your life, every perfect thing you have in your life, you have because God made that possible. Back in the Old Testament, this is the attitude that David had. And David was, was uh, full of humility um, at this particular stage of time in his life. He's an old man. He had wanted to build the temple, a permanent building for God, but uh, God wouldn't allow it. And so um, worship was centered around the tabernacle. It would be David's son, Solomon, who would actually oversee the construction of the very first temple. Since David couldn't do that, God wasn't going to allow him to do that, um, he, he wanted to do all the fundraising to make it possible for Solomon to hit the ground running as far as building a temple. And so in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, we have an account, uh, actually chapter 28 and chapter 29, we have an account of where people were giving. And it all starts with David as the king. He gives out of the royal treasury but uh, and gives of his own personal wealth. Um, but then the leaders in Israel, they give. And, and then the general population is giving. And, and it's on this day that this is happening that David stands before the people and he prays. He leads everyone in a prayer. And I want you to see you know, part of that prayer. This is what David said. Now, remember, when he's saying these words, what I'm visualizing, because the text seems to paint this picture, is I'm visualizing, you know, piles or at least stacks of generous donations that people have given, you know, all over the place, you know, uh, around David. And here's what he says. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow, without hope. Oh, Lord, our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand. And all of it belongs to you. Well, quite a contrast to Nebuchadnezzar that we looked at earlier, right? But this is David's attitude. And this is why David is so generous in his expressions of gratitude to God and thanksgiving. It's because of the humility reflected in those words. David is saying, Lord, all of this that we are giving, this is no credit to us. Because all of this came from you to begin with. We're only returning to you what you have blessed us with. You see, that is humility. 
I was reading a story about a fella, his name, um, John uh, Krolik. He wrote a book here just a few years ago. I was unfamiliar with him, this whole story, his story. Uh, I was unfamiliar with that. The title of the book was 365 Thank Yous. And he's a guy that, a lawyer that uh, lived in Southern California and perhaps still lives in Southern California for all I know. Um, but he ended up writing this, this book, which is detailing uh, everything about um, for every day for an entire year, he was writing a thank you to somebody. The reality of the matter is he went well beyond 365 days. He, he wrote more days than that, so I don't, I don't know why they settled on this as being the title. But, um, but the interesting part of the story is what preceded this, what led him to do this. He had found himself at a particular stage in his life that we would describe as being middle life. This is when someone, you know, especially in his vocation, should, should uh, uh, life should be, you know, looking pretty good, well set for years to come, right? But that wasn't the case with John. He was 53 years old. Everything was falling apart. The wheels were falling off, as they say. His law firm was failing. He was, uh, or had just finished going through a very painful divorce. It was his second divorce. Uh, and as he goes on and tells the story, he actually started a relationship with a girlfriend, and then that seemed to be going south as well. He lived in a tiny apartment that he described as being cold in the winter and hot in the summer. He was 40-some pounds overweight. And anyway, he gives several descriptive things regarding um, why he says that his life was a mess. And so he decided this one day he was going to go to the mountains and do some hiking. As a matter of fact, uh, this was something that was actually prearranged with his girlfriend, but now she didn't have any interest in going. So he decided to go ahead and do it himself. And so he went to the mountains and he started doing some, some hiking and uh, um, he got lost. And it was during this time that he was trying to figure out where he was that he, the way he describes it is, is like he heard an audible voice, you know, giving him instructions to start writing thank yous, okay? Now, I'm not going to make a comment one way or another as to where that voice was coming from or was it just in his head, but this, this is his story that he heard this voice giving him instructions. Now, later he does talk about he did have a grandpa at one time that really encouraged him to be thankful and express thanks, you know, but he'd never, he never troubled himself with, you know, following that kind of advice before. But so here he is out in the mountains, and he's hearing these instructions, um, and so he decides that this is what he's going to end up doing. And so he starts writing thank yous. Now, the thing is, this isn't a religious book. So if you're looking, don't look on the religious aisle or section of the bookstore. It's not a religious book, and nor is it really even a testimony of faith. It's just his story that he's telling. Um, he says multiple times that this whole process, it transformed his life. Those are his words. It transformed his life. And he does say at one particular junction in time that previously he would be uh, kind of like a self-described um, 
atheists. That's where he was. But by the time this whole thing is done, he's going to church. Okay, so there are, you know, changes, you know, happening that way. But that's really not what this book is ultimately, you know, talking all about. So when he started writing his thank yous, he started with his family. He knew right away that that's where he would begin, and he would write some thank yous to his kids and stuff like that. And once he got done with that, um, then he thought, okay, well, you know, certain employees that had worked with him and expressed loyalty and stuff over the years. Uh, So he started writing them thank yous, but he had no clue where he was going to go from there. And then one day, which he made it a regular routine, I guess, to go to Starbucks to start the day at Starbucks. And when he walked in, the gal behind the counter greeted him by name. He went frequently enough and shelled out enough money that uh, um, he probably deserved to be called by his name by that point, but, uh, but, you know, he just, he had never noticed that before, but now he noticed it and he decided I'm writing her a thank you, you know, about, about, you know, showing value for a person to take the time to, to learn their name. He even decided at one point that, uh, uh, he was going to write a thank you to someone that he would have never considered him possible that he would write a thank you to and that was his ex-wife he absolutely did not get along with her at all but the realization dawned on him that the one thing he always admired in her she was a terrific mother to his daughter and he always admired that and so he decided to write a thank you to her and, and that sort of thing it's that kind of a story as he's you know determining and People come to mind and, and little things that tr- flip a switch and causes him to write thank yous. And anyway, he's doing hundreds of these. Every day he's doing this. And what he describes that happens through all this is that it ends up shifting his focus from what was going wrong in his life to what is going right in his life. He began being focused on something else other than the negatives and the down-in-the-mouth sort of things. Now he's starting to think about you know, more of the positive things. He begins to notice that some of, some of the very people that are around him and that are regularly around him are genuinely good people. And for whatever reason, he hadn't noticed that before. But now he's starting to notice that. He, he at one time, every time he was asked, and we all get this question. In fact, you've probably already gotten it this morning. Um, but we all get the question, how are you or how are you doing, right? I mean, that's kind of a standard um, greeting, the way we greet one another. Well, for him, the way that he just knee-jerk reaction type of response was to launch into griping about this and that in his life. That was his standard response. Whenever anyone asked, how you're doing, then he would just start bellyaching about, you know, whatever grief he had that particular day. But now he started noticing at some point in time in this, after all these days of writing thank yous, that he started noticing that he was responding differently to that question. How are you doing? Now he was catching himself actually sharing some of the thank yous that he had recently written. And that was his response that he was giving to that that standard question. He started seeing the positive effect that this was having on people around him. He was noticing um, the positive influence and effect it had. 
And again, in his own words, he described it as his life was transformed through all of this. It all started, and my assessment of it is that it all started when pride fell by the wayside and was replaced with a good dose of humility. I don't know that he ever ended up saying that, but, uh, but that would be my assessment as to a big part of what was happening in his life. But his life changed. And it was all because he tried to be more intentional in being grateful and doing more than just thinking it or feeling it, but actually expressing it. I think there's some good value to that. Remember, this is how we are to be described. As people with, that are overflowing with gratitude. As a child of God, as a person of faith, is that a descriptive phrase that others would use of you? People that rub shoulders with you regularly, would they say about you? If somebody come up to them and said, describe so-and-so to me, would they ever say something along those lines? Man, they just always seem so grateful. They overflow with gratitude. That is to be a description of a Christian, according to the Word of God. And you know, there's one place where all of this begins. And as we move into our time of communion, I want to end with this. Paul said it this way in the last verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He said, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And when it comes to gratitude... I tell you what, you know, this uh, John uh, Kralik, you know, he, he maybe, I don't know his entire story, maybe he kind of had to manufacture some of that gratitude. Maybe he was forcing it, you know, especially in the early days. But the reality of the matter is, if you grasp what it is that God has done in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you, even though you were dead in your sin, you were among the walking dead, but yet he sent his son Jesus to take your cross, to die in your place so you could be freed from your sin and you could have the hope of eternity. Boy, there, is, there, there need not be a forced attempt on our part to manufacture gratitude, not when you really embrace that. It should be natural. It should set the tone for our lives. That becomes evident in our dealings throughout the week. So today, while you're going to be taking the bread and eating it and the cup and drinking it and remembering the death of Jesus, use this as an opportunity to express gratitude to him. But realize that this isn't something that has to be limited to a Sunday morning sort of thing. This is something throughout the week. We ought to spend some time reflecting on and allow it to set the tone for the lives that we live, lives overflowing with gratitude. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus and for the special gift that he gave that came by way of great cost to him. We celebrate that, Lord. Help us never to take that for granted. 
Help us never to develop the attitude that, well, as far as salvation and going to heaven, well, I deserve that. God forbid that we ever allow that kind of an attitude to develop within us. Forgive us if it has. None of us are deserving of your love, your grace, your mercy. And so, as a family, as a group of believers, together, we say thanks. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.